Well, we welcome both campuses together uh, via video today. And if you're a guest here or at the Ridgeview campus, you're probably going to go home today and you're going to say, that church takes the Bible seriously, so seriously that the pastor had leprosy. Um, but I, I do need to let you know, in case you missed uh, the EDUV article a couple of weeks ago, it's a treatment uh, for precancerous stuff on my face because I'm a, a late middle-aged grandpa, I guess, at this point in time, and has to be taken care of. I'm fine. I want you to repeat to your neighbor over and over again, I do not have skin cancer. You know, you don't need good information to have a good conversation in a church, but just communicate uh, to one I'm good. I just, I'm not great to look at. And trust me, at Antioch, you're getting the better end of the deal today because at Ridgeview, they're seeing all of this in close-up glorious high definition. So, it is what it is. We'll be leaving on staff retreat in just a few weeks. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work, both in prepping for it and for the actual task once we are there. Early last month, we had our staff one-day retreat uh, where we planned for staff retreat, and we formed work groups that will focus on one of four opportunities that we see for our church in the 23-24 church year. And those groups are currently working on the things they need to work on to get ready for retreat, and then we will meet in earnest at retreat, and then we'll do a presentation on what we've discovered, and the entire staff will feed into it, and we'll take all of that and work on our plan for the upcoming church year. Like I said, it's a lot of work. And, and out of all of that, we have our basic ministry plans. For instance, when will D-Now 2024 be? Today is uh, the last Sunday of D-Now. And um, since the last time we did it was on a Super Bowl, the Chiefs won. Uh, I am for doing it every single Super Bowl Sunday from here on out. Um, but one of the things, too, that we plan is our preaching calendar. And for the second year... Forming our preaching calendar uh, will fall to, to Pastor Micah, our Ridgeview campus pastor. Up until last year, I had always been the one who set the preaching calendar, but last year I decided that a fresh set of eyes was needed to plan our messages, and so I tasked Pastor Micah to lead a small group of elders and staff to come up with our preaching agenda for this church year, and I was really, really excited to see what it is that they would come up with. I was confident absolutely in Micah's ability uh, to lead that group and for that group to put their finger on God's will for our messages this year. And then Micah stood up and said, between February and July, we will be in Exodus. And I immediately began to say, what? What Exodus? The book that single-handedly has wrecked more read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year uh, plans to start a new year. Exodus, you want to spend six months in Exodus? Why in the world do you want to do that? And I began to immediately, again, uh, re regret making the assignment, but, but not really. Uh, seriously, I'm actually uh, an Old Testament fanboy. I was, because I'm that kind of nerd, my Old Testament professor's tutor. Uh, years ago, I once, let me emphasize once, was able to sight-read the simpler Old Testament books in Hebrew. My doctoral work was in the Old Testament. As a part of that, I had to translate and diagram sentences in Hebrew. I mean, folks, I love the Old Testament. 
But I know that many of us, many of us on both campuses here today, avoid it like, we're in Exodus, I'll use the word, like the plague. And Exodus, especially after the Ten Commandments are given, is especially troublesome. Some of you can identify with what I said a minute ago. You committed to read the Bible through in a year, and about right now you're landing in Exodus, and you just don't know if you can do it. So when you hear that most of 2023 will be spent walking through this book, you're going, Exodus? Why in the world? But unlike me, you're serious. So my job here today is to introduce this series and to demonstrate to you why, seriously, this may be one of the most meaningful, impactful message series that you've ever heard us bring at Blue Valley. But before we do, let's just make sure we have some basic background out of the way from your admittedly uh, Old Testament nerd uh, lead pastor. First things first. We may think of Exodus as being a standalone book, but it's actually one of five component parts of the first section of the Bible that is known collectively by the Jews as the Torah. So each component part or book was written as the continuation of the other. So Exodus is the continuation of Genesis, and Leviticus is the continuation of Exodus, and Numbers is the continuation of Leviticus, and Deuteronomy is the continuation and actually the capstone of everything of the book of Numbers. The simplest way to explain how the Hebrews thought of these books as really being one thing is to look at their names in Hebrew. Each book's name in Hebrew is simply the first word or words of the book. And so in Hebrew, Genesis is called in the beginning, and Leviticus is called and he called. Numbers is called in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is called, and these are the words. And our book, Exodus, is called in Hebrew, these are the names. They are the only Old Testament books titled this way in Hebrew, and it highlights how the Hebrews thought of these as one collective whole. Now, if you spend most of your time in the New Testament, you'll notice as you read this book, there's really no statement of authorship in Exodus or any of the other four. There's no introductory statement saying, my name is, and I wrote this. That's due in part to the type of books they are, but also because the Hebrews just didn't place that big of an importance on identifying the author, at least at the time. Traditionally, though, all five books are attributed to Moses. You see this reflected in the words of Jesus in the New Testament when Jesus will quote from one of these five books by saying, Moses said or Moses wrote. But that in itself isn't necessarily proof that Moses authored these books. Jesus could have been referencing the books as the, uh, the books about Moses or the, the books written at the time of Moses. I personally lean strongly toward the belief that Moses actually wrote the words of the first five books of the Bible or at the very least they were compiled in his lifetime. But it's ultimately not important, unless 
you are one of those people who deny the authorship of Moses as a kind of passive-aggressive way to undermine the authority of the books, claiming they were written, and this is what uh, that type of person does, written much, much later uh, by Jewish priests to encourage faithfulness during uh, uh, times of hardship in uh, Jewish life, where these myths about their forefather Moses were created. In that case, people denying the authorship of Moses are doing so to deny the authenticity of the information these books contain and to deny the miraculous events that they record. And despite what you may hear from those naysayers, there's substantial scholarly evidence that these books are indeed as old as they appear to be. So pushing back against that is incredibly important because it undermines the authority of God's Word. So again, I lean strongly toward the belief that Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible or compiled them or that they were uh, written in his lifetime, but I'm not going to argue with anyone about it unless you are saying that to deny that all these books are recording for us events that actually took place. If you say they're a myth, I'm going to have a friendly conversation with you. So there you go. We're now all equipped to kill it at Bible trivia. But none of this is any encouragement at all as to why you should hang with us through July as we walk through this book. No encouragement that you will benefit mightily from your time in it. To find that encouragement, we're going to have to dig a little deeper into what the book is about in the first place, into what the message of this book actually is. And the message is simple. Exodus exists to teach God's people who God is. The purpose of the book is to teach us who God is. In other words, behind all of the flash and bang of plagues falling and seas parting, behind all of the confusing and, and, and foreign descriptions of rules and regulations of ancient Jewish life, behind the monotony of detail in the constructing of the tabernacle, the simple purpose of the book is to teach readers who God is. One of the basic questions of life is who is God and what does he want from me? Everyone, everyone has to answer that question and their answer charts the course of their life. If the answer is there is no God, so the answer as to what he wants from me is nonsensical, or there is a God, but he's remote and disconnected, so what he wants from me is irrelevant, then those answers will chart the rest of your life. Your life will take on that character. If the answer is there is a God who is harsh and demanding, so what he wants from me is harsh and demanding, your life will take on that character. If the answer is there is a God who exists for my pleasure and empowerment, then your life will take on that character. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Everyone, everyone who's ever lived on some level asks and answers the question, who is God and what does he want from me? And our answer to that question determines everything about us. Who is God 
is the most basic question of life, and it's the subject of this entire book, and that's why you should hang with us through July. And perhaps the clearest answer to that question, who is God, is found in Exodus 6. So why don't you open your Bibles, find the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. That should be pretty easy. Find Exodus chapter 6, and I want you to find verse 6 with me. This little passage that we're going to look at briefly this morning comes after Moses has made his first appearance to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, with God's demand that Pharaoh release the people of Israel from the slavery that they currently were experiencing, which, spoiler alert here, didn't go well. Moses is rattled by this setback and essentially cries out to God, what are you doing? You told me to do this, and it failed. What are you doing? I want you to follow along with me as I read God's answer to him in verses 6 through 8 of Exodus chapter 6. Say, therefore, this is God speaking, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And in those verses, God shares with Moses who he is, and those points are underscored over and over and over again throughout the book. First, these verses tell us that God shows grace, that God is a gracious God. If you're comfortable in doing so, and we're going to do a lot of marking in your Bible, so if you got a new one for Christmas, if you're comfortable doing this, you're getting ready to put a lot of marks in this little section. If you're comfortable doing so, I want you to underline several phrases in these three verses. First, I will bring you. Underline that. I will bring you. Next, I will deliver you. Next, I will redeem you. Next, I will take you. Next, you shall know. Next, I will bring you. Next, we'll give it. Let me tell you one of the biggest misconceptions we have about the Old Testament, especially when we consider the relationship with the old and the new. Many, many people think that the Old Testament is about rules and the New Testament is about grace. But that's a woeful misunderstanding of the Old Testament in general and of Exodus in particular. Those statements that I have just had you underline, prove that. They are dripping. They are literally dripping with the idea that if the Hebrews were to 
ever get out of slavery and were to ever go into the promised land, God would be the one delivering and bringing. It would be all up to him. And the entire book, not just these verses, show us God's grace. I want you to hold your spot in Exodus chapter 6, and I want you to go not just to the most familiar passage in Exodus, but maybe the most familiar passage in all the Bible. Find Exodus chapter 20, which records for us the Ten Commandments, which most people tend to think of as the requirements for salvation. In other words, if you talk to someone on the street about what it takes to go to heaven, you'll be stunned by how many people say, well, you've got to follow the Ten Commandments. And yet, I want you to look at verse 1 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. Understand this because it's vital to understanding everything about God. God isn't saying in the introduction to the Ten Commandments, I'm about to give you ten things to do if you want me to be your God. He's saying, I am the God who has already saved you. In light of that, I'm commanding you to live like this. Don't you see? The Ten Commandments are propelled by the grace that God has shown in making us His, not by our need to do certain things so that He can be ours. Right there in the Ten Commandments, the preeminent list of rules in the Bible is God showing His grace. I could go on and on in the book, but we don't have time. Exodus doesn't show us a God who is harsh and demanding and reluctant to give salvation. It shows us a God who shows grace, which is exactly the kind of God that Jesus showed us when He came to earth some 2,000 years after this. These verses also show us that God is a God who brings justice. Again, if you're comfortable in doing so, I want you to now circle these words that I will highlight for you. Circle the word burdens. Circle the word slavery. Circle the word judgment. Circle the word burdens. When we are introduced to the Hebrews in Genesis, they are uh, people who are going to experience God's special blessing. True to God's promise to Abraham, they are blessed beyond measure. And the family of Abraham steadily grows in number and in wealth. And this continues when they migrate to Egypt to escape a famine and settle there, growing to such numbers that, plot twist, Pharaoh deems them a threat and enslaves them before they can reach numbers that could possibly one day overthrow him. And in this slavery, they find themselves for generations. And as the captivity and as the oppression mounted, they conclude that God has forgotten about them, and indications are they had largely decided to forget about God. Their cries for deliverance generationally go unanswered. The strength of those who mistreat them seems to grow unchecked. But we will learn in this book that God has not forgotten them. Their cries have not gone unheard. 
When God enlists Moses as his messenger, he does so with the words, I have surely seen and heard their sufferings in Exodus 3.7. He's acting in the entire book on their behalf. He's going to deliver them and exact justice from those who have harmed them. And the entire book, not just these verses, show God acting in justice to make right the wrongs that have been perpetrated against his people. Finally, these verses in particular in the book of Exodus in general show us a God who seeks relationship who seeks relationship. One more time, if you're comfortable in doing so, I want you to make note, this time with boxes drawn around these phrases. I am the Lord. My people. Your God. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord. Each of these phrases I had you underline pack a relational wallop, especially when you see LORD, L-O-R-D in all caps. L-O-R-D in all caps in our English Bibles means that in Hebrew, the divine name is being used. Yahweh is how we hear it, or Jehovah. It's the name by which God made himself known, and that's so important. It's the name by which God made himself known to Moses and the Hebrews, and in the giving of the name it communicates that God wants to be known and he wants to be in relationship. Being known is a choice. I was doing some work with our regional network of churches several years ago and I found myself one Sunday morning at a small church in north central Nebraska, seriously small. I'm talking about maybe 20 people. And I don't know if you've ever ventured off the beaten path in western Nebraska or in western Kansas, but folks in those parts are very suspicious of outsiders. So much so that if you pull in uh, for gas at a gas station entering town, by the time you get to the other side of town, everybody knows you're there and they're just watching you come down the street. And so when I arrived at the church that morning, I thought, well, I'm just going to stand out here in their little entryway while the pastor's flipping the lights on and just meet people. And so people walked in, and I said, hi, I'm Derek. And they shook my hand and said, hello. Nothing after that. Just staring at me. I was like, well, you know, okay. And that happened over and over again. But then the pastor came up and said, this is my friend Derek, and he's uh, here uh, with our network to visit us this morning. And as soon as he did that, the people who had previously just looked at me with folded arms said, I'm Bill, I'm John, I'm Sarah. They, they were as if they were saying, uh, you know, I'm not going to make myself known to you until I, I feel safe enough to do so. And that's what God does when he gives his name to Moses and the people. He's saying in the most obvious way possible, I want to be known. Here's my name. And the entire book shows this to be the case time and time again. In fact, the language of Exodus 19, which is one of the high points theologically of the entire Old Testament, show God speaking through Moses to the people to prepare them to meet him when he gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And the language that is used is the language of matrimony, the most intimate human relationship possible. 
Exodus shows us a God in relentless pursuit of relationship over and over and over again. So for the next six months, we're going to see God on full display, showing us his grace, bringing justice for his people, and in a relentless pursuit of relationship, making himself known. And yet, we'll also see the very people to whom he was showing grace and bringing justice and who he was relentlessly pursuing, not getting who he was or caring who he was. And for reasons that I think some of us can understand. I want you to look at the reaction of the people to what God had Moses say to them. Look at verse 9 of Exodus chapter 6. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but look at this. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. You see, Moses had already told them about this God once when he arrived into Egypt with this message from God, and he had told them the plans that God had for them, and and they received it enthusiastically. But when things didn't go as expected in the first meeting with Pharaoh, people conditioned to hopelessness, hopelessness of believing that God was cruel, that he didn't care about their hardships, that he didn't care about them, these people, conditioned by hopelessness, defaulted to their programming. They defaulted to hopelessness. I wonder here this morning who might be able to identify with that on some level. You hear a preacher like me point to a God who shows grace and who brings justice and who seeks relationship, and you allow yourself for just a moment to begin to hope that maybe it's true. But then a lifetime of legalistic religion and hardship and disappointments and seeming silence from God takes over, and you can't really believe what I'm saying to you about a relational God full of grace and justice, the same God revealed on the pages of Exodus. You aren't the first to doubt based on your experience, and you won't be the last. So, if your spirit is broken and you're enslaved by the idea that God is harsh and demands from you more than you'll ever be capable of giving to earn His love, join us for the next six months. If your spirit is broken, and you are enslaved by the idea that God has forgotten you in your hardships and that those who wrong you will always win, join us for the next six months. If your spirit is broken and enslaved by the idea that God is cold and distant and uninterested in you, join us for the next six months. If your spirit is broken and you feel a slave to sin in your life that you just can't beat and a slave to trial or a slave to hardship or a slave to disappointment, join us 
for the next six months. Because God wants to reveal himself to you on the pages of this book and point you ultimately to the fullest revelation of himself in the, the man Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and who is our Lord. That's why we're excited to bring you these messages for the next few months. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.